Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. I'm also going to be at the Business Rocks Tech, Music, and Investment Summit recording shows live in Manchester, England, April 21st and 22nd, where Steve Wozniak is headlining. More information about the summit is on the show website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Anne Bridges, an author in Silicon Valley. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kevin. Glad to be with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show. You kind of have a, an interesting background and... Um, you know, your books are obviously doing really well, but kind of maybe before we kind of get into your books and kind of what you're doing now, maybe let's cover kind of your background a little bit and kind of how you got to become an author. So maybe we'll start off with um, where you grew up. Sure. I grew up in the Chicago area. Okay. Uh, it's a beautiful city. Lake Michigan, Michigan is gorgeous. Um, and frankly, it was underappreciated when I lived there. I spent some time poking around and playing on the Northwestern University campus, which I did stick into one of my books. But in general, uh, it was a great place to grow up, but I left to come out here to Silicon Valley to go to Stanford University. Okay, so what did you take at Stanford then? I majored in psychology. Um, which I really didn't know what I wanted to do in terms of a career, and that seemed a general basis for understanding people. And as I got into business, a lot of people nodded and said, yes, uh, you know, you can take accounting, you can take poli-sci, but when it comes down to management and really understanding what makes people tick, actually psychology was a pretty good major, though I had no concept that I was going to be uh, getting into a business career that was kind of outside of my realm of understanding at the time. Um, but that's where I ended up. So here we go. Sure. It helped that Silicon Valley was exploding with all the technology at the time. It was hard to miss that there were opportunities and jobs. Sure. So you, you, you graduated Stanford. Did you end up working in the field or, or what did you kind of do after Stanford? Uh, well, actually, you know, for all the people who complain about high unemployment now, when I graduated Stanford, it was 17%. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, oh, wow. So trying to find a job was a little tough. So I worked temporary positions, but I ended up stumbling into cable television, which actually was the high-tech uh, fun field at the time. It was right when it was taking off and was getting into every household in America. And because we were here in Silicon Valley, we were actually at the forefront of trying a lot of the new interactive technologies that allowed you, for example, to have live sporting events or the okay. live concerts or the first-run movies into your home. So all of a sudden, I was thrust into a growing industry using computer technology, which I had avoided taking any class when I was at Stanford. Because um, <laughs> only nerds took those, right? <laughs> of course, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I learned on the fly everything I need to know about computers, um, but really started understanding this whole concept of what was going to happen when you started interacting with technology in your home and the power of video and how how much people really got involved in what they were seeing, um, much more so than radio, for example. Television is a much more powerful force. Sure. No, no, that's interesting. So you were kind of working in, kind of in television. How long did you kind of do that for? I did that for approximately, gosh, eight or nine years. Okay. And then I got involved in telephone technologies. I left the cable company and went with a startup okay. that was developing the very first technology that allowed telephone calls to be carried on a broadband network. And at the time, oh, the only companies that had broadband were cable. Sure. And so my cable background helped quite a bit. And when I joined them, they were struggling trying to get scheduled for an IPO because the economy was bad, the stock market had crashed, and they were, you know, stretched for funds. And so we waited and we waited, and finally we were able to go public, and we were the most successful IPO um, of the year. Oh, wow. Because it was such a compelling story. You know, wow, all of a sudden you have two huge industries, cable and telephone, trying to work together. And actually we had the electrical utility industries as well, trying to figure out how to get data to the home because they wanted to start – this concept of smart usage and, and energy management and give their end customers a way to 
you know, do the things that we now take for granted, you know, reduce the thermostat or turn the lights on and off remotely. So we had a very compelling story, uh, not very good management uh, when all is said and done, and uh, we capitalized ourselves through Wall Street, which was wonderful, and had a change in CEOs and a change in strategic direction, and I ended up leaving the company. But I left because I realized I had a wonderful sense of how all these different industries were starting to come together, and they were trying to figure out what the heck this Silicon Valley was. What was this computer industry that was booming and creating huge valuations on uh, Wall Street? Netscape had gone public, and most right. of the people back east were scratching their heads and saying, how can a company that does nothing get this much money <laughs> you know, from venture capitalists, <laughs> from the Wall Street guys? And so I set up my own consulting uh, business, and really what I was doing was introducing the large like Fortune 10 firms who mostly were based on the East Coast, who knew that they needed to understand what was going on out here, but had no idea how to do it. I mean, they had mergers and acquisitions people who were, you know, and, and brand new MBA graduates who knew how to do spreadsheets, but had no idea how to look at a dream of an idea or a bunch of geeks sitting in a room who had you know, broken through some wonderful software code and be able to, to differentiate the ones that were worth investing. Sure. And so I was often bridging the gap of communication because by that time I had learned <laughs> to talk to the geeks and the nerds sure. and realize how brilliant they were. And they were happy to talk to me because they had no idea how to talk to people in suits. And the people in suits had no idea how to talk to the people in um, you know, rollerblades and, you know, the kinds of environment that you see out here typically in, in Silicon Valley was not um, the usual business environment. So um, it was a, a wonderful opportunity to just be right in the middle of all this and see how these emerging companies ended up becoming some of the most major ones in the world. PayPal, for example, I met with the you know, three original founders and, you know, it's just, it wow. is what it is. Uh, so <laughs> That's cool. No, that I, I love that. Like, and in in some cases, it's kind of still like that. I think even just being yeah. a creative person, sometimes I find it really kind of uncomfortable to have like business conversations because it's like, what? What are you talking about? I don't even know. Where, like, so I, I totally, totally get that side of it. And it's interesting that, you know, you basically, well, you, you built a career doing that for a period of your um for, of time so do you kind of still do that or, or or is that kind of just in the past now that's in the past uh what happened is silicon valley got so big and started attracting so much money right um in the 90s that the large consulting firms moved in lock stop and barrel and you know i my clients had a choice of me and 20 people from Ernst & Young <laughs> I got you. Yeah, <laughs> who, yeah. who would advise them. And I was having clients from Japan to Europe, so the kind of time zones that were being required for me was crazy. And I said, well, I can either grow this and become, you know, try to create a big consulting firm, or I can just kind of semi-retire at an early age and figure out what else I wanted to do with my life and not try to keep pace with, um, you know, these, these huge corporations. So that's what I decided to do. I took a break, did my standard fixing up the house, gardening, and started looking for something more meaningful to do with my life, which I think everyone should do at some point in time before sure. retirement. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is that when you, you decided to kind of get into writing or, or did you do something else before you kind of got into writing? No, I I did get into writing then. I, I decided I wanted to share my unique experiences as a woman. Sure. Uh, in a room full of men behind closed doors. Um, yeah. You know, I was the only woman in the room, and generally the youngest, in fact, in the cable industry first, then the tech industry, and right. then in a lot of financial negotiations with VCs um, who were helping a lot of these small companies that were my clients. And uh, very few people in general, had a chance to experience any or all of that, then when you look at the number of women who had that opportunity, it's even tinier. So I said, what can I do? And my choice ultimately was to communicate so I could either speak or I could write. And I decided that writing was more my cup of tea. I had always been a voracious reader, um, but I had never taken a single formal writing course. 
Oh, interesting. I'd written a lot of things for business, obviously, and had devoured fiction my entire life, but I had never uh, sat down and written it. So I started writing, and uh, it was a process of learning. I will tell you that I've, you know, um, had to go through the school of hard knocks in terms of writing, and I can tell you that I've done many drafts of all my books uh, in the process simply because it is a learned skill. Sure. No, totally. Late my life. (laughs) No, to be fair, um, I got asked to write a a tech book on a framework um, a couple of years ago, and it took me eight months to write the thing. And Uh so, and I like, I'm not a writer, right? So, and tech book, you can kind of get away with not being a writer because people aren't there to read the words. They're they're they just want the knowledge, right? And and so, yeah, like it was quite the experience for me. So. Being able to write, like come up with an ideas and, you know, actually tell a story and put it in proper English, I can imagine is uh, <laughs> tricky, right? Like, we're... Well, thank God for spell check <laughs> and online thesauruses and all the other grammar checks that Word has built into its software. Sure. Without that, there would be a lot of editors that still had jobs. No um, fair. You can, you can learn quite a bit these days just by being open-minded to what's being suggested to you. Sure. So I'm kind of curious, though, and kind of just even just talking to kind of the aspiring writers out there or people that are kind of looking to maybe get into the space. When you first started getting into writing, did you just start with like draft one of your first book or did you write a bunch of other kind of stuff first or or how did you kind of start? Okay, so let me back up a little bit and and tell you where I am in my writing career so that it doesn't get too confusing. So I have three books that are in the process of being published. One just came out in September, uh, this past September, Private Offerings. It's sequel, Rare Metals, coming out in May, and then I have a third coming out a year from now, um, which is called Kit's Mine. Right. So although that is the third book, that is actually the first book I wrote. Okay. Okay, so it's a historical love story. And the reason I decided to write it is I was actually, as part of my semi-retirement, I said, you know, I love business. I miss it, actually, when I retired. And I said, I should teach myself economics. This is one of those, you know, classes that I had avoided in college because, gee, I wasn't going to be a business person. So I started reading all these thick economic tomes and, and just kind of learning the concepts. And in the process, I found this one reference to this lawsuit that had gone all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court on eminent domain that was based on a San Jose, uh, Silicon Valley, San Jose mine, uh, quicksilver mine, mercury mine, which was used during the gold rush. Okay. And in the process, I started stumbling along, learning a lot about California history. And in that process, I happened to stumble across a line in a book that said that Chinese women were being imported to San Francisco and auctioned on the streets in the middle of town as late as 1870. Oh, wow. And I scratched my head and I said, well, I know about my American history. Slaves, you know, slavery was abolished in 1863. California was a union state. What the heck was this all about? And I was appalled. I was appalled I didn't know about it. And then I was appalled that it happened. And so I started researching that. And indeed... The Chinese were treated very differently hmm. uh, than most immigrants. They were considered sojourners. They were not allowed to become citizens. Um, and so the story that developed that became Kit's Mine, my third book, is a story of a Chinese-American girl, so the daughter of a Chinese immigrant who'd come here to work in the gold mines, you know, speaking oh. his fortune just like everyone else, okay. and was unable to own the mine because he was not a citizen, because of all these owner's laws against the Chinese. Interesting. So that was kind of the inspiration. And I just was very passionate about that story. And so I just sat down and, you know, framed it out, you know, spiral notebook, did it on airplanes and stuff like that, framed out what each chapter was about, and wrote it. And uh, had some other authors that I met who were willing to read it and give me critiques. Oh, interesting. And take lots of red pens to it and tell me where I was wrong. And I wrote it and rewrote it and wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. Sure. Um, so that's how that started. It was really just a, a passion. 
uh, about that specific topic. That's which awesome. Generally works. So, you so how many revisions it. did you kind of roughly go through? Do you do you remember? <laughs> like it, it sounds like a few. Like I, I'm just trying to get a sense, just for kind of the listener, because I think sometimes I think even writers that do this all the time, like yourself go through revisions, right? And different oh, versions, yes. right? So oh, yes. like you probably um, went through well, half a dozen, like I easily went through three major revisions okay, okay. and then probably went through another dozen uh edits where okay. you're going through over and over and trying to change the words and moving paragraphs around and adding this and adding that. Um that is not untypical. I heard once an author advise um that you should take your time that you've allocated, and a third of it should be done upfront organizing. Okay. A third should be allocated to actually writing, and a third should be allocated to editing. Oh, interesting. Because, yeah, if you don't organize it, you're going to spend more time editing. Right. right. So I have learned, I actually use a spreadsheet now <laughs> to help me organize the chapters and the characters and you know the plot and the themes I'm trying to to communicate and before you you know, sit and try to worry about this perfect word you have to make sure the plot flows and the character grows and you know the surprise ending you've got with you know put enough hints in along the way and where you're going to put them so um organization is very very key and i did not realize that as much in my first book sure so did you kind of line up a publisher for for your books or or kind of um do you want to maybe talk quickly kind of the, the process that you went through to kind of, you know, get your, your first book kind of out there, um, sure. and then maybe talk about kind of what each book is kind of about, like, I, well, you did one already, and, and I know your books have kind of won some awards and stuff too, so do you want to mm -hmm. maybe kind of feed into that as well? Sure, let me first talk about the publishing. I actually hit it at the perfect time and didn't realize it. Um, okay. I decided I wanted to try ebooks. Okay. Because um, prior to ebooks, the whole process was you tried to get an agent who would then introduce you to a publisher, and the publisher would say yes or no. When ebooks came out, the publishing industry kind of stopped in its tracks and said, whoa, we don't know exactly what this is. And then Kindle came out, yep. and they realized Kindle was a huge impact. They were not interested in talking to any new author. So unless you were already had a publisher and had books out, they really kind of ignored you. Okay. So I could have gone forward at that point in time and done ebooks, but I decided not to for a while. I wanted to wait and see how it was going to shake out, and that was probably a very foolish mistake on my part. If I jumped in with the rest of the people who were the first ebooks that were available, they established a name. I didn't. Um, when I finally decided to do an ebook, um, I went out actually with Kit's Mind first, and then Private Offering second. Okay. And I had just put them out on ebook. Uh, this is in 2014. Okay. And uh, realized that while here in Silicon Valley we think the ebook is the be all and end all, and everyone is eventually going to read books electronically, that many people do not. And I realized I had to find a print publisher. So using networking, which cannot be replaced, sure. um, just asking around, I ended up finding a publisher down in Pasadena, California, which is Southern California, who was a new entrepreneurial-minded publisher who wanted to establish a beachhead in California for California authors. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. He kind of looked at how the New York industry was still looking east. I mean, they still refer to China as the Far East. We here in, in California look west at it. <laughs> so little things like that. Sure, <laughs> sure. We're just a better match. And so he um, said, I'd like to have all three of your books, in fact. So the two that I put out and then the half-written sequel. So I yanked them from the market. Interesting. Uh, in terms of e-books. Uh, I just started the whole marketing and had to stop cold. And it takes a year for the whole publishing process to happen. Right. So it so my first book actually came out again in ebook but then in print format as well in September of this past year private offerings. So okay. that was the publishing uh story. So private offerings is an international suspense thriller and it's about a software engineer struggling to go public Via an, via an initial public offering on Wall Street. So many people know what the term IPO is, maybe has a sense that this is when stocks are still are starting to be uh, sold to the public marketplace. But very few understand what happens behind the scenes and totally. the potential 
pitfalls. So I had gone through that, and so I had a chance to really share that inside story, but make it more interesting. Sure. Um, so it was very. I'm very honored to be included in the same list as Ben Bernanke as one of the ten best business books of 2015. Yeah, congrats. My That's goal awesome. Was, yeah, my goal was to create a form of edutainment to put out enough information in the book that would inform people of what an IPO was, um, why it's important, what games can be played, but make it a fun story as well. And so that was that was just a huge honor for me. And it was kind of a uh, behind-the-scenes goal for me to be recognized as business fiction because that is a very tiny niche. Most people don't think that they would want to read a book about business, so I can't really market it that well that way. Okay, um, but that is indeed what it is. <laughs> no, that that's actually really interesting. And, um, I, like, for me, I read everything – well, not everything, but as much as I can on, like, the Kindle app or the Google Play Books app – but I was just recently at a, a conference we in uh, Boston, and we, we have a library product, uh, software product, and we were going around chatting with people about, like, where they read, whether it's digital or um, um, physical copies. And a lot of younger people even are saying that they prefer still reading the, the physical book. So, you know, it, it's interesting. It's almost like you need to be on both mediums, and it sounds like you've kind of found that, you know, and... Um, basically allowing people to kind of read where they want to read. Yes, and actually, interestingly, there have been now um, studies, my psychology does come into play here, and right. studies on cognitive understanding of what you read. And they are learning, actually, that the way your brain works in remembering what you've read does have some correlation to the physical space. In other words, you remember that a phrase was about a third of the way through the book, or you may remember holding the book a certain way. So when you're trying to recall something, you, you remember where you were in that time and space and how you were interacting with that physical book in your hand. And the problem with reading online or reading ebooks, and this has huge implications in my mind for education going forward, where so many textbooks now are being done online. But anyway, they're finding that you have a like a 50% decrease in recall of the content if you're reading it uh, through an e-book platform. Interesting. So a lot of people are recognizing that. They miss that physical interaction. When you travel, an e-book is wonderful. But the rest of the time, people are saying, hey, give me that, that hardware. The other thing that a lot of people don't realize is when you buy an ebook, you actually don't own it. Yeah, uh, they can, like, remove it from American your device? Law. Well, American law um, says that you are basi- basically licensing the right to read it for the length of your r- lifetime. So people, for example, who used to have book collections and then they would uh, bequeath it to their children or to a library, whatever, upon your death, it's gone. It's no longer has any value interesting i didn't know i didn't realize yeah. that actually that's actually yeah, really most people do. Yeah. no that's fair so you've released your books kind of physical and electronic um i'm kind of curious to know do you do you kind of know do do your readers and, and kind of your target market seem to go one way or the other or is it kind of a, a little bit of a mix it's very much a mix and okay. in fact there is more certainly a Stopping of growth in ebooks, and some statistics are showing somewhat of a decline. Yeah, I've heard that um, as well. Actually, that's interesting to me. Um, have you had any experience, or have you put any of your books um, as audiobooks? Not yet. Okay. I do have a really good friend who has done it. She's one of the forefront um, in terms of doing it and trying different technologies, and she encourages people to do it all the time because it's a smaller market, um, so you don't have quite as much competition. Sure. In terms of marketing the book, there is a whole different cost of production, however. So when you do an e-book, for example, you're taking the same digital text, and you may format it a little bit differently for an e-book than you do for, te- for a printed book. But in essence, you're dealing with a text file. When you get into audiobooks, you have to you do a production. You know, it's another five, ten thousand $10,000 of production cost where you either 
have to have the equipment. You have to buy, you know, hire talent. You have to do the editing, which you, Kevin, know about in yep. your show. You know <laughs> that there is a portion of it. So, you know, when you start looking at the numbers again, it's not just the time to record a book; it is the time to edit the sure. recording of the book as well, and then get it into an audio file. Da 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 da. Yeah. Uh, no, it makes sense. And and just like basically when we were wandering around chatting with people, it's a lot of people said if they have like long commutes on like a train or when they're driving, that yeah. they'll listen to audiobooks. Or So it, it was just kind of fascinating to me. And I was just kind of curious um, because that was a couple of weeks ago and it just kind of knew on my mind. And I, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts and ex- kind of experience on that. I think it's a great idea. I, in fact, had been contacted by someone locally who uh, started up entre- entrepreneur who claims he has software that can convert text files into a good quality audio file. So at the point that happens where it doesn't sound like a, you know, a robot reading the page, sure. um, then you might be able to do something with it where they may recognize here's a female voice, here's a, here's a male voice, here's the narrative, you know, the descriptive as opposed to the dialogue. If, they, if someone can figure out how to do that so it would still be interesting, then I think you'd see them take off because it would not, the cost would not be so prohibitive. Sure. So where can people kind of buy your books? They're available wherever books are sold is the okay. phrase. So sure. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, most, you know, the the whole concept of retailing books is a little different than it used to be. So, uh, you know, bookstores don't stock every title. They presume that you are going to go online maybe and look for a book you want and then either tell them in advance, please order it for me and I'll pick it up in a day or two. Okay. Um, or you're going to buy it on Amazon. I mean, it, it's the whole concept of walking into a bookstore and browsing and discovering is not as major a focus for them. They are trying to anticipate what their market wants and stock those books. Um, so the, the successful independents are growing and um, doing well, but they've had to change their model a little bit from offering lots of copies of every title to curating the content for what, to what they think uh, will work best for their market. And as a result, if you're a new author, it's harder um, to get on the bookshelves. Sure. So that's something my publisher, for example, was able to do on my behalf um, that I couldn't do as a self-published author is to, you know, get into all the Barnes and Nobles and make sure that um, it's just a standard contract that they can say, oh, great, you know, you're you're there. I can just order the book and standard terms and we're set. Sure. No, that's awesome. So do you maybe want to just mention um, the titles of um, the books again, just so if when, you know, if people are looking on Amazon and the other um, places, and I'll post them in the show notes as well, so people can actually just go to the website and um, go right to it. But just for people listening um, on the radio and whatnot, do you want to just kind of mention them again? Sure, I'd love to. Okay, so the book that is out now is Private Offerings, a Silicon Valley novel by Ann Bridges. Its sequel is called Rare Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, and that will be out in May. And then the third is Kit's Mine, that's K-I-T apostrophe S, Mine, and that will be out next May 2017. Okay. No, that's awesome. I, I think that's great. So, like you said, so is Kit's Mine kind of all written now and it's done? Or, because you said it takes about a year, So, or are you yeah, still kind of finalizing edits and whatnot? Well, as my writing has improved, um, I am going to take one last shot through it to make sure it is a match to my current talent. Let's put it that way. I got you. Uh, Because I wrote it first, I released it first, but it is in essence written. And my publisher is thrilled with it. They think that this is is actually the one that they like the best, Um, (laughs) interestingly. But uh, they decided a historical can wait that the Silicon Valley ones are tough. Because, you know, just in the process of writing it, cell phone technology changed. I had to go, oh yeah, from you know, cell phones in their hands, oh, smartphones, oh, people text, oh, gosh, you know. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, Bluetooth now, and what's going to be built in the cars in a year? So it ages very, very quickly. So we decided to get the modern ones out the door fast, and the historical could wait a little bit, and uh, nothing was going to change materially about what happened in 1870. <laughs> sure, yeah, exactly, right? No, that's that's fascinating. So it sounds like you just kind of come up with book ideas based on, stuff you find fascinating or experiences you've been through? 
Well, what I really am trying to do is share untold stories. Okay. So private offerings, for example, yes, that's much more composite of my experience. But again, the, the concept was that I sh- share information that most people don't know about. Okay, um, interesting. Rare metal is actually based on a true story, a true happening that happened in 2010, where China uh, put an embargo on Japan for very critical electronic components. Now, these are the components that are used in all advanced technologies that are based on rare earth metals. Okay. Um, it's, this has been covered a little bit in the mainstream press. 60 Minutes did a little piece on it last year. But no one really wants to talk about it because it has huge, huge implications. Sure. And it's, it's complex. So it doesn't fit very well in the five-minute soundbite. Or we had 30-second soundbites these days. So it doesn't work well in a very short story. So I said, well, this, is, this is important. And I'm going to create a what-if, worst-case scenario, uh, what if China decided to embargo the U.S.? Interesting. Um, what would happen to Silicon Valley technologies? What would happen to our military? What would happen to uh, defense contractors, etc.? So that that was the inspiration, and so that took a lot more research into the actual technology behind it and the underpinnings. Uh, it continues some of the characters from Private Offering, so it's, it is a sequel, okay. um, and move moves forward that way. Um, but it is a standalone story. Right. There's so, one thing. One, one thing you probably wouldn't want to know before you read private offerings, because I try to do a surprise twist at the end of every one, um, but it's not a killer. Okay. So, did you travel to like China and Japan, or, or is it not? No, really I haven't. Okay. Um, you know, there's so much ethnic diversity in Silicon Valley. Sure. Um, so many immigrants are coming here on H-1B visas that I have made some very good friends um, sure. that are quite diverse, and a couple of them are Chinese who have been willing to share quite a bit of their background. One of them was in the Tiananmen Square. Another one's dad worked oh, for the wow. space program there. Another one is a, um, was, uh, you know, a middle class, came from a middle class family during Mao's uh, come to power. Wow. And describes her story of, you know, the what she survived on was literally weed soup. W-E-E-D, Susan, and we're not talking about marijuana here. We're talking about, you know, boiling wow. boiling the leaves of weeds um, and surviving on that. That's what her family ate, and, you know, I mean, it's just horrific conditions. And so you, you compare the, you know, what the, the uh, propaganda press is that's being put out by China versus what my friends tell me, and I had to start doing some research about what's truth and what's not and where is China going and... And uh, the good news for a writer is that they they move very slowly as a country, so okay. I can anticipate some of their some of the big news events that are coming. So, for example, when private offerings came out, coincidentally was when President Xi visited in September, okay. and right before that was when the Shanghai Stock Market Exchange had a huge crash. Right. Well, that was part of private offerings. Oh, interesting. I had people say, how did you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that one was written years ago, so that was just coincidence. But Silicon Valley goes very fast. China goes very slow, so you can kind of extrapolate what the future might look like. No, that's that's really interesting. So are you kind of planning your next kind of fourth book already, or is it still kind of early on? Well, I have a couple ideas. One is to do with another um, historical and then another – or another – sequel to Rare Metal. Um, I'm kind of playing around a little bit to see what resonates well um, with people. It's, it's still kind of early to get final numbers on some of my, the, the modern day Silicon Valley. Sure. And I love both storylines, to be honest with you. Uh, so right now I'm actually spending my time more marketing. A lot of people don't realize how much time an author spends as an entrepreneur. You know, sure. Figuring out the branding, figuring out the message, talking to people like you. Sure. Um, trying to just you know make people aware that the book is out and available. So uh, I, I guess I'm I'm kind of curious because I I know kind of what I went through with kind of the publisher that put out kind of my tech book and whatnot. I'm kind of curious to know, you know, you mentioned marketing and you're right, like it's a huge part of anything really. I'm I'm kind of curious to know. Does your does the publisher help you quite a bit with that? Do do, you, do they have a person on staff? Or are you kind of expected to do a lot of it yourself? 
it really varies by publisher okay. and by author. So if you are a best-selling author, like a friend of mine, Megway Clayton, um, just came out with a book, and she's she's been on the bestseller list before because Target picked up one of her early books. Right. So you know when she puts out a book, they know they're going to get hundreds of thousands of sales. So her publisher is going to say, hey, you know, we've got the money, we've got the profit margin, we'll send you on book tours and book right. signings, etc. Um, when you're dealing with a brand new author, no one does that. Okay. Um, unless they can get pre-orders. So like, uh, what was like Girl on a Train, I think was a fairly unknown author, but they had so many pre-orders because they got book reviews beforehand and people went, oh, wow, this is going to be a big seller. So, you know, it's it's just a matter of how many print runs and how much profit margin there is. Um, the expectation, I think, of authors that their publisher is going to do all this for them is wrong, and actually one of the reasons why self-publishing still has a lot of draw for many people, because if if an author is doing the bulk of the work, but sharing the uh, proceeds with the publisher, then the question is, what is the publisher bringing to the table? And in my case, Balcony 7, uh, Medium Publishing is the publisher. Um, what they've done is they have established relations with a distribution channel, so Ingram's is the main distributor, which gets me into bookstores. They right. have a global presence. Um, they get me into libraries. So their, their main uh, goal, role is to help with the design of the cover, get it printed basically in a quality fashion, work with book reviewers, work with the industry. Okay. Right. If you have a book that is niche um, or unique or doesn't fit into the traditional retail library model, then you're going to end up doing much more on your own because that's not where they spend most of their time uh, as an umbrella for all their authors. You are unique. Um, so it's just what what portion of the effort do you want to do on your own? Because my background is in marketing. I had no problem doing the marketing no matter what. Uh, some people who, for example, are very artistic would say, well, I can do a, a book cover. I have no idea how to do publicity. So they may you know, design their own book cover, cover and hire out a publicist. Sure. Uh, no, that's interesting to me. I, I'm always kind of curious, how much control does the author kind of have on the artwork and cover of the book? Like it's probably different per publisher, but mm -hmm. have you, in your experience, is it kind of sometimes you don't really have a say or you have all the say or is it kind of somewhere in the middle or is it really depending on the publisher? It probably depends on the publisher and the contract. Okay. Um, in my case, I was blessed because not only did the artist that the, my publisher contracted with read my book. So that's very unusual. They just want a, a description. You know, what's okay. the book about? Okay, I'll do artwork. He actually sat and read the whole thing. Oh, and wow. when you look at the cover of Private Offerings, he captured literally in a picture what would take a thousand words to describe. So the, the impact of a good cover that really does communicate what the book is about is incredibly important, and I am lousy at it. Um, so I was very happy with the cover that came out. And in fact, it's very humbling because I would walk into um, retail stores and say, would you like to carry my book? And they'd look at the cover and they'd go, great cover, yes. And I'd Interesting. Say, well, you don't know anything about it. They don't care. <laughs> great cover, yes. <laughs> so, so they are judging a book by its cover. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I spent years on this. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm responsible for the inside stuff. Um so, yeah, they do, partly because they know that's how consumers shop. Sure. Right? No, I... They need an eye-catching cover. I think, you know, uh, you get like a half a second in someone's vision as they scan along the different books. So if you have something that will make them stop and pause and read the back of the cover. Sure. To see whether they'll like it, you have a more likely sell. Sure. So was that the same for your second and, and going to be the third book as well? You're going to get the same artist to do... Um, those covers? Well, I guess did the second cover and the third the cover? The second cover is uh, similar. It's based on his original work with some tweaks. And okay. then the third one, I think they're going to go with something totally different. I think we're talking about a photograph, maybe. Um, different things work for different genres, and that's more of a historical romance. Um, right. So they'll probably do something softer and more female. Right. Okay. So d was there a couple rounds of kind of design revisions, or did he basically hit it round one? Um, 
he hit the major one round one, and I said, can you soften it a little bit and um, make it look not quite so, um, how do I describe it? Yeah, have you seen a, a, a picture of the cover? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Maybe so do you want to describe what's on the cover just for the listeners? Yeah, the just cover so is, is kind of like, um, I'm trying to think of the word. I want to say Soviet Union style. You know, okay. it's red and it's sure. got a silhouette of a, a man's face. So the, the first version, his, his sketch was kind of blocky. Right. And I said, can you soften it a little bit? So what he did is he put a silhouette of a woman behind him. He gave a more of a George Clooney look, is what I've told. So made the lips a little fuller, put a little dimple in his chin, and added some curls in his hair. I mean, seriously, this is all he did. And made it, instead of a really stark red, more of a lighter red. Right. No, and that, I went, wow. That's awesome. No, I, I like that's always kind of fascinating to me because I didn't really – like. The, the tech book I wrote just has a, a photograph and and they're just like, how's this? I'm kind of like, okay, like I didn't really have that much say, but so I was just kind of fascinated to know kind of if how much say you did or didn't have, but it sounds awesome. Well, told, that you uh, my have... experience is very unusual because most authors do not have that. In fact, I've heard horror stories where the author hates the cover sure. and the publisher just says, tough, that we think this will sell. And, you know, you live with it forever. Sure. No, it sounds like you have a really awesome publisher. Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, if you put out a couple <laughs> books and you're doing more with them. So that's awesome. So I'm kind of curious, though, to maybe get a little back into kind of the marketing side of, of things. What are you kind of expected to do or have kind of decided to do? Like, are you doing a bunch of book signings? Are you doing a bunch of social media campaigns? Like, just kind of in general, what are you kind of doing to, to promote your book just for, you know, other authors out there? Well, I'll tell you what's typically done, and then I'll tell you what I'm doing, which sure. is two different things. Sure. Typically, um, book events, trying to get interviews uh, and book reviews from your local newspaper, book signings at bookstores and libraries, et cetera. That's, that's generally the typical, you know, checklist of things to do. Okay. Um, it has mixed results. It depends how well your book is targeted for that specific market, the time of year, the time of day. I've heard, you know, you a rainstorm, for example, all of a sudden, you know, a bookstore that expected 100 people gets no one. That's not your fault. It's just that is what it is. You plan right. it months in advance, and then you, you deal with whatever happens. Um Social media is is something that's part and parcel. Facebook is is kind of the fan club equivalent, where people who like your books can go on and read and, and engage with you. Um, so that's that's pretty standard these days. I have a website, authorannbridges.wordpress.com, and there I have a little bit more information about me and what I'm doing and my purpose, which segues into what I'm doing that's different. So I really believe that. Um, my work is trying to create a better understanding of, of business. That's why I was thrilled about this business fiction. Sure. So what I am doing is actually marketing it to a lot of schools and organizations and, who, and saying, look, you're trying to teach the concept of business by giving people, you know, big, thick biz school tomes to read. And that doesn't cut it, especially doesn't cut it, I don't think, for women. Sure. Where they're a little bit more suspicious about how they might fit into the business world, into the Silicon Valley business world, which generally tends to be more male. So having a woman writing a book that's a story form, that has a strong male and female characters, is much more attractive to get some of the basic issues across. So I am actually selling it more and marketing it more as a complement to nonfiction efforts. Okay, um, interesting. Kind of odd, but that, that is in essence what I'm doing. I'm saying this is edutainment. This is a way to communicate information, but in an, educa- in an entertaining way. So are you just reaching out to them kind of cold calling more, or you have some connections in, in the space, or, or a little bit of both? Lots of cold calling, lots of uh, you know, raw emails introducing myself. I do referrals. I do networking. Um, I've tried to establish you know, myself that way when I give interviews and, and have had an opportunity such as this to talk about the concept of business fiction. Um, then you know, people seem to resonate with it, but it is, it is unusual. There is no category for it in a bookstore or a library. Um, it's just just look at you blankly and say, well, no one wants to read that. And it's like, well, people are reading it. <laughs> and <laughs> <Fair>. they do. <laughs> Fair enough. So I'm kind of curious, like, how long is that kind of 
category or term been around? Like, is it quite new? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, okay. one of the most popular books that's ever read is Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand, and right, that's yep. business fiction. Michael Crichton, who also did Jurassic Park, okay. did Disclosure. I don't know if you remember that yep, one. Disclosure yep. was about uh, sexual harassment sure. in the workplace. Um, so it is there, okay. but like me, they've categorized it differently. Ah, okay. and, I got you. Uh, so, he, he, so mine's an international suspense thriller. Crichton was probably a suspense thriller. You have to look for it. Um, I don't know why they do it that way, but they do. Sure, I guess. It's just kind of like anything, right? They have their default categories, and they need to fit you in one of those, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, exactly. that's that's interesting. And, and I think it's interesting to mention that you know you you're still kind of hustling this as well right and i think that's that's kind of fascinating to me and i think there's kind of this like myth that if you get this publisher that you you kind of just sit back and watch the the checks come in right and i think <laughs> it's interesting that you know like even even like got people that are writing like really big books that are on the you know by really big name authors still do all this stuff right and and there's a lot of effort that goes into promoting this stuff there is a lot of effort and even if you're a big name you know you're you're being asked to fly all over you know uh, to attend book signings you're, you're asked to speak um, you're hit up for giving your books away for nonprofits and fundraising. I mean, it, you are running a business, and sure. if you don't set yourself up that way and recognize that you will have costs and time is important, then um, you will not succeed because you will either get very frustrated or you will put yourself out of business. Sure. Which is also one of the issues with digital technology that I do want to mention because I think it's very important coming from Silicon Valley. I sure. run into this all the time. So, you know, we all love our little, you know, iPods and getting free music, that whatever, free content on the Internet. Sure. But I think what's forgotten in all this is that the enabling technology enabled cheaper production and maybe cheaper distribution. But okay. you are still paying for your Internet access. You are still paying for the equipment that you're using. In fact, if you're using an Apple, you're probably mm-hmm. paying quite a bit of money. Yes. For some reason, the content portion is being devalued. Totally. And I would agree. argue that if you don't get quality writing and you don't allow writers to earn money, they will stop writing because totally. they need to feed themselves. No, totally. And those movies you like so much, by the way, they're written first. Right? Yep. <laughs> the dialogue yep. doesn't just happen. <laughs> <laughs> Screenwriters and, you know, the books that they're based on. So the whole concept of, oh, we want this stuff for free, well, sounds marvelous. Mm-hmm. But just like a free lunch usually tastes pretty lousy, you are going to start ending up with a situation where the kind of content is going to be poor quality. And I think you're starting to see this more and more content Sites, content aggregator sites are saying we want to curate content. We want to find the best that's out there because sure. they realize that they've gotten quantity and they've lost the quality in all this. Um, unlike musicians, for example, who can perform and maybe make money uh, giving a concert, who's going to come and listen to me read my novel? Yeah, no, it's a fair point. And the thing that always kind of like I always think of is people have no problem going to Starbucks and spending like six or more dollars on a drink that they might have one sip and throw in the garbage, or they might enjoy it. But $6 or, or more, but they're like, oh, I don't want to spend $10 on an ebook or a dollar on an app. And you're like, what? Like, I never understood that, right? I like, agree, and I think it's just, actually out here, I think it's hysterical because there are a number of people, see if you can tell the logic of this, who say, I'm going to make rich doing a free app. Yep. And I scratch my head and I said, if it's free, how are you going to get rich? Well, unfortunately, they have been getting funding from venture capitalists, which I think may be coming to an end. But that's sure. that's why I'm saying that people just don't understand business. It's not taught in schools. Um, and they walk out and think that they can just – literally, the money grows on trees, that they can just become wealthy. And they're not thinking through how – that business is creating that value and what the costs are to create that value through the entire supply chain to get to the point where you have an enjoyable experience. No, totally. And I think there's, and I think it's like you said, I think it's kind of coming to an end, but there was a few years there where 
everybody's business model seemed to be sell to one of the big three, right? Like sell to Google, Facebook, or Twitter for a billion dollars. And it didn't really matter. You didn't need to be making money. And the whole thing is just kind of fascinating to me. And so I... Well, some of that is you buy up your competitor before they have a better product. Yeah, for sure. Um, Actually, I have a very interesting historical perspective because coming from the cable television industry when all this was starting to happen, cable was was one of the few that actually had a subscription model, right? Right. Yep. cable bill every month. And the telephone industry thought that was fascinating. They said, wow, how do you do that? Because we can't guarantee how much revenue we're going to have every month because if someone makes a long-distance phone call, we'll have more if they don't. And we can't control that. But they had no um, costs of content because people created their own content. Right. While we had to pay, for example, ESPN or HBO for their content. And so when the Internet companies started coming around and trying to figure out their business model, they originally thought subscription would work. That's how AOL, for example, started. Yep. America Online as a subscription. And then when Netscape came in and they started just selling banner ads yep. and advertising all of a sudden became, oh, that's the way to go. There's no barrier to entry. Well, there's no barrier to entry, but what they've learned now is advertisers are not getting results from their ads, so they're not paying for them anymore. So it was a... It was a failing business model to begin with. They, sure. they based it on network television and radio, and it does not it does not transfer over to a free network. Um, so no, that, <laughs> I'm kind of sitting back and watching this all develop. <laughs> sure. No, it's fascinating. But uh, and sadly, we're out of time. But this has been awesome. This is this has been great. It, like great. you, I don't know. You covered basically everything that I wanted to talk about and more. And you know, I, I love the fact that you like kind of what you're writing about and, and you're doing it and, you know, and you, you shared tons of kind of valuable information to the listener. Um, but do you want to maybe kind of cl- in closing kind of promote kind of maybe just give a quick overview again of the book or the book, sorry, um, you know, title, um, kind of what they're quickly about and then where people can kind of find you again online? Sure, I'd be happy to, and thank you for the opportunity. So you can find me online on the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, I go by author Ann Bridges most often because Ann Bridges is not is a fairly common name. Sure. So author Ann Bridges, and my website is authorannbridges.wordpress.com. Um, my book that's out now is called Private Offerings. And it's available wherever books are sold in both ebook and print. Okay. And then its sequel, Rare Metal, is out uh, in May. You can find more information as well on my publisher's website, balcony7.com. Uh, so it has details about the books themselves and endorsements, for example, if you'd like to read what other people have said about it. Perfect. Well, Anne, thanks again for doing this. It's been awesome. And I look forward to keeping in touch. And uh, who knows where this is going to go, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I appreciate Kevin, and if you have any other questions that you'd like to ask off offline, I'm happy to, to help you, especially if you're struggling to figure out whether or not it's worth it to write a second book. Sure. No, that, yeah, I would, yeah, okay, stay on the line. I'll, I'll chat quick. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thanks again, and uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch. Okay, thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to the show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. Until next time, keep building the future.